All right. Good, good, good. Um, Matthew 11. We're there this morning. If you guys want to turn there, we'll be there in a few minutes. Um, I want to begin just kind of considering some groundbreaking inventions in the Western world. Um, The clock. Uh, Do you guys know when the clock was first invented? Anybody? Hmm. Okay, cool. The first clock was set up in Germany in the 1300s. And uh, it was uh, here where the world shifted from natural time to artificial time. Pretty big deal. Like, before that, you, you woke up when the sun woke up, and you went to bed when the sun went to bed. And, and so that was natural time. We've moved since into artificial time. It brought dramatic change to the world as we knew it. Um, another invention, the light bulb. 1879, I was going to ask you that all of you guys would have known that. Uh, Tommy, Tommy E. Uh, was the inventor of the light bulb. Uh, prior to 1879, the average American slept 10 hours a night. It's real. Again, like a groundbreaking invention that affected us to this day. Uh, you fast forward to the 1960s, and in the average American home, there was a microwave, there was AC, there was a washing machine, maybe a dishwasher. And here's what's interesting. It's common in the American home. Uh, A Senate subcommittee uh, in 1967 1967, predicted that by 1985, the year of my birth, the average American, because of all of these inventions, the average American would work 22 hours a week, 27 weeks a year. Because of the new leisure time, these technologies would free up. In 1967... They thought, in light of everything that we've just discovered, the new innovations that we've just created, that the freedom that we are now going to have is going to allow us to be able to be a much more balanced group of people. We look back in 2023 and say that they've misjudged that prediction pretty dramatically. Um, The last... Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, And then lastly, the iPhone, the third invention, uh, and you know, how, how have we used that time uh, that they talked about in 1985 where we'd have all this leisure? In June of 2007, they gave us a tracking device uh, for that very data. And so in 2016, we've talked about this before, we'll talk about it again. Uh, iPhone users touch their phone an average of 2,617 times a day. Um, that's on average in 2016. On average in 2016, we, not they, we, uh, looked at, except for Amish Heather, uh, looked at the, the, the phone two and a half hours a day in 2016. You fast forward to 2019, and again, they track, they know, they know. If you press uh, accept what, what Apple can do, uh, then they, they know all your details. And so by 2019, 2016 was two and a half hours a day. 2019 was, uh, on average, we looked at our phone five hours a day. So instead of slowing down the, and harnessing technology to balance work and rest, we now suffer from what um, mental health professionals call hurry sickness. This is our norm that we live in. It is hurry sickness and restlessness that drive us into the ground. What was thought to help us has actually begun to crush us. The irony therein. Innovation has not led us to be more free. It's led us to be more restless. And so a recent survey in 2000, uh, sorry, a recent survey of 20,000 Christians around the world revealed that Christians worldwide identify busyness and constant overload as a major distraction from God. There's a a professor 
at Charleston University School of Business. Um, his name is Michael uh, Zig Ziggerly, uh, and he describes a vicious cycle prompted by cultural conformity, which I, I think this quote is very interesting. He says it's the cycle of five things. It may be the case that, one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. You see, our moment that we're living in is not one that has caused us to be less busy. It's caused us to be hurry-sick. It's caused us to be restless within our soul. The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard continued the sentiment when he was once asked, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? It's a good question. And he sat he didn't respond immediately. He sat, he's since passed, and he sat with a long pause, and he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. If you want to have a soul that's not shriveled up, dying on the inside, you have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I think that was a prophetic statement to our, genera- our generation. You know, Innate restlessness colliding with digital age and cultural accomplishment and accumulation is leading us to be tremendously unhealthy and spiritually parched at minimum. Hurry sickness and restlessness are forming us in our new norm. So we turn to Matthew 11, and we hear an alternative way of life, a way that gives us gospel amidst hurry sickness and restlessness. I'd love to pray with us, and then I'll jump in. Fathers, we even just consider our cultural climate and the word just like in it. Just pray that you would give us a, a way out, like a, a life, like a life, what are those things? Lifesaver, like a, a, th- a thing that you'd throw out and help us, Lord, in the midst of this. You would draw us in and provide a, an alternative way, Lord. I, I pray that you'd give us a sense of hope to be distinct in a culture that's crushing our souls. Help us to see it afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 11, um, Jesus gives these famous words, some that you might have even memorized. I wonder if we actually believe them. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, maybe also translated, all who are hurry sick and restless, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These words are profound, and every generation they're profound, I would say they're uniquely profound for us in our day. He says, come. He says this word, come, it's this reality that we have to accept our current position and recognize that it's not enough. It's a willingness to take a step of humility to actually move towards him, to step away from our moment and where we are. And he says, don't just come, but come to me. The, co- the gospel path is only through Jesus. As St. Augustine said, as he watched the fall of the Roman Empire, he confessed with, again, another prophetic 
uh, statement, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Come to me. This is all who labor and are burdened. He doesn't say get your life in order. He doesn't say button it up first. He doesn't say figure it out and make sure that you got all your ducks in a row. He says, no, man, broken, weary, out of gas, burned out, tired, restless, hurry sick. That's the posture he wants us to come to him with. Not with confidence, not with arrogance, not with our chest puffed out as if we have it together. It's not for the the strong. So this language is is language of discipleship. This is language of formation. Here's the point, my friends, that you are all being formed by something or someone. Something is forming you. Someone is forming you. And Jesus invites us to be formed by him. There is something. There is a parent. There is a guardian. There is a someone that you look up to. There is a philosophy that you believe. There is a passion that you have that is forming and shaping how you live your life. And Jesus says, no, 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 take my yoke, not that yoke, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. His words are so profound. In the 89 chapters in the Gospels, there's only one place we hear about the heart of Jesus. And it's here. It's gentle and humble. He is the most understanding person in the universe. His natural posture is a posture not of pointing fingers, but of open arms. You want to inspire motivation to follow Jesus. You want to free people from their deep shame. You want to provide rest to a restless generation. Show people the heart of Jesus. Show yourself the heart of Jesus. He is omnipotent, omnipotent, yes, but he's omnipotently gentle. It's here we find rest and actually can learn from him. You don't have to walk on eggshells when you follow Jesus. He's not waiting for you to make your next mistake. He's gentle and humble. Dane Ortland says this. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exacerbated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The, The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. See, we project our skewed thoughts and instincts that we think that Jesus is upon Jesus, that he, though, isn't like your boss. He isn't like a parent figure. He is gentle and lowly. And this matters to us as we pursue this conversation. Dane Orland goes on to say, It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated, It cannot be plumbed. It is easily neglected, forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. This is a bountiful reminder that motivates us to follow him. And it's not just that Jesus was gentle and lowly. He still is gentle and lowly. Finally, Dane Ortland, who wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly about this subject, said, The risen Lord, alive and well in heaven, is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked on earth earth. Come to me. Those who are swimming in a restless, hurry-sick generation, and I will give you rest. See, the prerequisite isn't to clean yourself up, but to come to him. So friends, we have to exhale as we start talking about restlessness, and as we talk about hurry-sickness. Friends, I have gospel for you 
within this restlessness. Jesus comes and he offers us rest. The propaganda we feel to attain something here and now, if just having something that would quench your soul is just garbage. It's not true. Only Jesus. And in Jesus, we will find rest. And so the question is this. Is there a practice of Jesus that we can tap into to find rest for our souls? Like, it's good to talk about this idea of Jesus providing rest for our souls. But is there a practice? Is there a, a way that can help guide our hearts and our lives into away from this driven nature of hurry sickness and into a posture of rest? The answer is yes. There are several, but the one I want to lean into in this season of Lent is called Sabbath. It's called Sabbath. During this Sabbath series, we want to continually invite you into this place of rest. So we're going to be talking about Sabbath over these next several weeks during this Lenten season together. To consider this in Matthew 11, it's now finished, and the gospel writer Matthew is, all of the gospel writers, all the New Testament writers, all the writers in the Bible are strategic in how they're laying out their book, their letter, their poetry, they're strategic in how they do that. And Matthew finishes Matthew 11, we just read it, come to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And then right after that, where does Matthew go? The next two, the very next two stories Matthew provides are two stories about Jesus healing and speaking about the Sabbath. It's interesting, right? That right after a conversation that he gives about rest, the very next two stories that Matthew gives are about Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. Let's look at them. In Matthew chapter 12, you don't have to go very far because it's right there on the same page. In Matthew 12, the following verses, there's a story about his disciples picking grain. They're hungry. They're like us, hungry, maybe hangry, and trying not to get too far down the hangry path. And so they pick grain as you might would, uh, potentially. And so, um, so and the, the Pharisees see it, the religious leaders, they see it. And they get indignant. They're just legit frustrated at what they're seeing. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. According to my rules, according to my regulations, according to the law that I have, you're not allowed to pick grain on the Sabbath. There's nothing that ticked the Pharisees off more than the way way that Jesus responded on the Sabbath. And then in verse 6, we pick up and we read this in Matthew 12. It says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you have had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You're good. Hey, you're good. You're good. Get your work out of me. I love it. Um, so, so what we read here is that he, he says this, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is now being clarified not through the religious eyes of the Pharisees, but through Jesus. He's now Lord of the Sabbath, which matters to us. And in the very next section, we read about Jesus healing a man. Something greater than the temple is here. And he entered the, temp- he entered the synagogue, and we read this in verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it 
and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So you read the story of a man with a withered hand. I don't know what that looked like, but it was a withered hand. And so just use your imagination. And so he had a withered hand, and these Pharisees knew that Jesus was going to do something. They said, is it lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath? They're trying to put him in a corner. They're trying to use this as an opportunity to, to fill their ammo, to be able to give accusation for why they could kill Jesus. They hated Jesus. And Jesus, he heals the man on the Sabbath. There's something profound about that. Something significant about how Jesus is willing to heal on the Sabbath. Friends, rest for your soul and Sabbath. They go hand in hand. It is in the Sabbath that we find healing for our souls and rest for our souls. John Mark Comer, at the top of my journal that I have, I'll be talking about this in the upcoming weeks, um, I have a Sabbath journal at the top. This is one of the few quotes I have at the top. And he says this, Remember the Sabbath is a day to be healed. The Sabbath comes to my door like a doctor. Or should I say the Lord of the Sabbath comes like a doctor to patch me up. So I have my rules, but all I'm doing is creating an environment where it is easy for Jesus to do his healing work. Friends, there's something powerful about this practice of Sabbath. So what is Sabbath? Sabbath comes from this word Shabbat. And Shabbat means stop. Everybody say stop. Good. So for a period of time, we choose to stop. We stop our work. We stop our worry. We stop wanting. We stop. We cease. And the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we read in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath, which means this, that Sabbath was designed to be a gift, a tool to help us become the people that we couldn't be on our own. Sabbath was not designed to be something that weighed over us. It was designed to be a gift given to us by God to help us have a balanced life where we're not just working ourselves into the ground, but we work six days and we rest one. That's the, that's the gift of what Sabbath is, is a gift designed to help us schedule our lives to become distinct. That day of rest is designed to be a Sabbath. The ideal is 24 hours, from sundown to sundown. That's what the Jews gave to us. But man, that's not what we're focusing on. I know for some of you, you haven't thought about Sabbath ever. And so for you to all of a sudden feel like you need to have the responsibility to have a 24-hour block of time where you set aside might feel impossible for you. And so I want to say that's not what we're going to focus. What we are going to focus on is inviting you to take a step forward. For some of you, that would look like a Sabbath hour. So for others of you, it would be a Sabbath afternoon. For others of you, it would be a Sabbath walk. For others of you, it would be a, a Sabbath evening. And so I want to put my cards on the table. And I just want to invite us into a posture of rest and to move the needle towards this place, towards this gift that God's inviting us into. Wayne Mueller says this. He says, Sabbath time is time off the wheel, time when we take our hand from the plow and let God and the earth care for things while we drink if only for a few moments, from the fountain of rest and delight. Sabbath is more than the absence of work. It is not just a day off when we catch up on TV or errands. It is the presence of something that arises when we consecrate a period of, a period of time to listen to what is most deeply and beautiful, nourishing, and true. 
Man, I'm convinced that Sabbath provides an opportunity of rest and healing for our souls. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, and he says this, that the Sabbath is the most precious present mankind has received from the treasure house of God. Man, so I want to spend a few minutes just thinking about Sabbath and healing. This idea of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath, providing healing and rest for our souls. When I talk about healing, I'm talking about healing to our souls. And so Jesus multiple times, seven times in fact, healed on the Sabbath. Seven times he chose to heal specifically on the Sabbath. And I want to go through some of these stories with you because I think it's significant for us to kind of understand how, how profound the idea of rest and healing on the Sabbath is for our souls. And so let's go down a journey of considering these seven healings. I'm going to spend a few, time, a few minutes on one or two uh, and just fly by the others. And so in Mark 1, we learned that Jesus drives out an evil spirit on the Sabbath. And Mark 1, later on, we hear, and then in Matthew 8 and Luke 4, we hear that Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. I don't know if that was something that Simon Peter wanted or if that Jesus was going against uh, Simon Peter's hatred for his mother-in-law. We don't understand the, the dynamics of his relationship with his mother-in-law, but nonetheless, Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. Third, we, hear, we see that Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, the story we just read. And again, we see that the Pharisees are indignant, they're angry, they're using this as leverage to try to kill Jesus. We see in Luke chapter 13 that Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. So we read all of these so far, and then we read about a man who was lame um, in John chapter 5. And I want to read some of this story to you. This, this man was... Uh, an invalid, or he was a lame man for 38 years. So I'm 38 in May. So he was lame for longer than my entire life. It's older than Ronald Reagan's election and re-election. That's older than the genesis of the Simpsons. That's older than the internet. That's older than Sid Bream's slide. And that's older also than David Justice's home run. Just could throw some brave stuff because it's coming. I'm excited about that. But 38 years. Get back to being serious, Ernie. 38 years, um, this guy was lame. And Jesus knew that this man had been placed by this pool. There was belief that at this pool you could find healing. And so he sat year after year just hoping that God would show up and bring healing to him through this water. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you want to be healed? And, he's, and Jesus follows up and says, get up, take up your mat, take up your bed, and walk. And so the Jews come, and he gets up. He does what the man says. He's all of a sudden healed. Of course, I would do the same. And he's like, okay. So he's, all of a sudden, his legs are strengthened. He takes up his mat, and he starts walking away. And the Pharisees are furious. And they come to him. They say, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The man was like, but he told me to and he healed me. I mean, can you imagine? Like, he's just kind of so confused why these guys are so mad at him. And then we read in John 5, 15, it says this. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working 
And verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he's in this moment where it's, he's revealing what's going on in the, the heart of the Pharisees. And he's healing this man on the Sabbath. Communicates a lot, we'll get to in just a minute. And we see another story in John chapter 9. And so this is a, a blind man. He'd never been able to see. And the disciples asked him, they're like, why is he blind? Like, it's like an open book. You can talk to Jesus about anything. Imagine, like, the one who created everything. You have, like, this direct line. It's, it's better than Google. Like, you can ask him anything. And he gives you, like, the real answer. Not always, like, just an algorithm of what, what you should hear. Like, it's actually the truth. And so you're hearing from the one who created everything. And so they ask him, why is this man blind? Is it because of his parents? Did he do something wrong? And Jesus replies, he says, Neither. He says, so that God would be glorified. And then we read in John 9, starting in verse 6, it says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And turn into this ruckus. How is the blind guy now not blind? And so there's all of this story around this. This guy was blind and now he's not. Is that the guy that used to be blind? Oh, he used to see him. He was blind. Now he's not blind. And the Pharisees caught wind of this. And again, they get furious. Something about Sabbath that exposes the Pharisee within us. And then in John 9, 15, it says this. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So again, we see that what's happening on the Sabbath is just revealing what's happening within the Pharisees, but he's also healing on the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath is a day to encounter the Lord of the Sabbath and find healing and rest for our souls. It's a day in the mayhem of the week to pause, to stop, to rest, to worship, and where Jesus can do his healing work within us. You know, imagine your soul, like the battery bar on your phone. Okay, so you, you'd plug it in, and if you use the, the bigger box, it, it, it fills up quick. And if you use the little box, sometimes it takes a little more time. But nonetheless, 100%, imagine you are that battery bar. 100%, you're, just, you're at peace. You're living in the way that God designed you to live. And, and 0%, it's just bad news bears, you know? And so, like, 100%, you're living in health, you're living in peace, 0%, like, someone does anything wrong, you're like rage, rage monster in, in that scenario. And so most of us don't rest until we get to about 10 to 20%, right? And it's, like, alarming, like, the check engine light goes off, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I need to, like, pause because I'm, I'm burning both ends of the wick. So we don't rest until we have to rest is typically how we operate, and we miss out on life to the full of Peace, and love, and contentment, wisdom, skill to love others well, confession, repentance. See, the best of life comes at 90%. The best of life comes when you're actually becoming recharged in your life. And see, without rest, good rest, we can't become the people that God has invited us into, which is why this conversation matters to us. And when I'm in a rhythm of, of, of working hard and resting well, when curveballs come, I'm okay. Or I'm quick to confess when I'm not. I mean, when I'm, I'm burning both ends, 
and I'm not resting and I'm overworking, when cur- curveballs come, it's over. Like, I'm, I rage and I get frustrated. I get easily angered and I, I, I struggle to, to live in that way. But working well and resting well is essential in how we follow Jesus. So consider what Sabbath reveals and what it provides for us. I was shocked as I, as I read through these accounts of, of, of Sabbath and what the Pharisees did in response. The Pharisees, things were revealed within the Pharisees because of the Sabbath. And I believe that Sabbath reveals things within us. Sabbath reveals the king within each of us. So for the Pharisees, this was what drove them to want to kill Jesus. This is what caused them to reveal the control they had. This is their expectations being revealed. But for us, Sabbath reveals what rules within you. It's what becomes vulnerable for us. Taking time to cease from work exposes us. We define our lives on work. We find value in saying I'm busy when people ask us how we're doing. We don't have a negative understanding of workaholism. And yet, we, and and so when Sabbath enters into our lives, it exposes that. It exposes what drives us. The control to hold our world together is revealed. Our workaholism can be revealed. Our desire to produce at all costs can be revealed. Our trust in our own efforts, saying we believe God on Sunday, but on an invitation to Sabbath, we reject it because functionally we believe that we're more in control than we want to admit. What is driving us, our performance, our inability to not be a human doing and just be a human being is revealed on Sabbath. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how Sabbath is a resistance for us. It's protesting and raging against the internal and external machine, the hamster wheel that we live in. But it reveals Sabbath, taking a day and saying, I'm setting this aside to you, like a tithe. I'm setting this aside to you, and I'm saying, I trust you, not just with my money, but with my life, and finding rest in Jesus' heart. Instead, Sabbath keeping at its core is a profession of faith. Rich Velotis, a pastor in New York, says, It's a confession that I am not what I do. It's a confession that the world will not stop uh, if I cease from my work. And it's a confession that Jesus is holding all things together. It's this declaration, this resistance of saying, The things that I feel within, I'm setting them aside. It's an act of resistance and faith. And so, Sabbath, it reveals what's within. But Sabbath also provides an opportunity to find healing. Jesus offers us this place of rest, this opportunity to find rest. And so I want to close with why we don't Sabbath. I have a few things that I've gathered from books I've read, and then I want to end by, we we did a survey, and you guys filled out some things. I'm not quoting any of you, uh, but I'm going to share about some of the things that we felt as as some of you guys filled out that survey. And so the things I've gotten from books is one of the things that keeps us from why we don't Sabbath is pride. Pride prevents us from Sabbath. Again, workaholism and our boast about work is a natural pastime for us. Busyness isn't isn't the source. The source is pride. The source is trying to show to the world that we are somebody. We live like Sisyphus, that, that, that Greek mythology example, where the guy eternally was pushing this rock up the mountain, only for it to come back down to push it up again. We can live in that posture in our lives, this hamster wheel type approach that comes from a place 
of pride, proving ourselves to the world. And the Sabbath yanks us off that performance pony. It says you're more than what you do. You're more than what you do. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by Jesus. That's where the gospel gets into our soul. We have nothing to prove to the world but trusting that we're loved by Jesus. So pride prevents us from Sabbath. Second, distractions. At best, we settle for a day off. Eugene Peterson, I'm quoting him here, but he calls it, at best, though, we settle for what he calls a bastard Sabbath. And we are too often in this temptation to, to call a day off a Sabbath when it's really not. We're just running errands and we're not actually finding rest for our souls. But man, there's an invitation to stop and to rest. And the third reason, again, the books that I've read that keep us from Sabbath is fear. Fear, afraid of stopping, afraid of delighting, afraid of not being in control. What was interesting, again, I appreciated you guys that filled out the form. Um, one of the questions that we asked within it is, um, is, around, is around what keeps you from Sabbath? And a few of you guys said things like this, which normalizes us together, that we're all in this together. The demands of life can keep us from Sabbath. The disorganization can keep us from Sabbath. The busyness can keep us from Sabbath. That self-reliance can keep us from Sabbath. That expectations of others can keep us from Sabbath. And I would just say this. What if we decided to rule our lives, allowing Jesus to rule our lives, not culture or the expectations of others? What if we heeded this gift and I actually saw it as an opportunity to find rest for our souls? I can't shake that survey that I read earlier about that from that guy, Dr. Zig, I don't know how to say his name, Zigger Lee. We talked about that, there's five cycles, right? Like what if we didn't assimilate to the culture of hurry and busyness? What if we no longer kept God on the margins of our lives? What if we, uh, if the church prioritized their relationship with Jesus? What if uh, we therefore were less vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions? What if we chose to be distinct and we became hope to the world that's dying because of hurry sickness and restlessness? And what if we became a distinct people? Not politically on one aisle or the other. What if we were all together different and we said, there's a different way to live your life and it's coming to Jesus, taking on his yoke and actually following him. There's this glorious opportunity that the church has in this moment to actually be different and not become like the Pharisees and say, you need to do what we're doing on the Sabbath, but instead having a heart of rest, a heart of peace. And we long for it. We desire it. I know we do. Come to me and I will give you rest. It feels impossible. I get it. In your moment, it may be. But with choices and changes, it's possible. For this morning and in this Lenten season, we are reminded of our mortality. Feel this beautiful invitation to lean in, to do this together. We need to do this together. We need to have people to feel like we're not alone, that we're all feeling the distraction. We're all feeling the busyness. We're all feeling the pressures of life to just have to do more and do more. And we're invited into this beautiful new way, this practice. Come to me and I will give you rest. So I want to close just with this posture of, Trevor, you can come on up, with this posture of surrender. It's the essence of our faith. Am I willing to believe that Jesus can bring rest to my soul? Or do I feel like I need to do it on my own? It's an invitation for us to rest. Am I willing to surrender my restlessness for the yoke of Jesus? I believe that God has something in store for us in this season. To take steps towards finding rest 
for our souls, a different way, an alternative way that Jesus is inviting us into. Come to me and I will give you rest. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we just confess. Come in. We just say we're on E. For honest, maybe we've seen that check engine light on for months and we're just assuming it's going to go away. I pray you renew our hearts. Thank you that you invited us into a new way, a distinct way, a different way. Rest for our souls. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. We want to embrace that promise. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.